You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, hi everybody, and welcome today. If this is your first time, as always, your hope it's not your last. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor here. Welcome everybody online. Thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, For those of you keeping score, uh, you'll notice in just a minute, we're kind of moving backwards uh, in our look at the Gospel of Luke. We skipped ahead a few verses last week to tie it into that great big miracle story we told you about. How about that? And so uh, today, we want to back up just a few verses, and for the purposes of this series, work through the story of, and the very famous passage about, the temptation of Jesus Christ in the desert. Here it is. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible, Luke chapter 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, led the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he led him, left him until an opportune time. That's the reading of God's word. All his people said, amen. Yeah, perhaps you've heard the phrase, making a deal with the devil. In literature, this is known, of course, as what's called a Faustian bargain, based loosely on the life of someone named Johann Faust, a 16th century German intellectual who supposedly sold his soul to the devil in exchange for unlimited knowledge and unlimited pleasure. And this idea The Faustian bargain has been recycled over and over and over throughout the centuries, including ours, up until and including the 20th and 21st. uh, Perhaps you've seen one or more of these movies, movies like Damn Yankees, there you go, Rosemary's Baby, Devil's Advocate, have this as a central plot device, and at a certain level, so do many Marvel movies. Ghost Rider, perhaps. Marvel's finest hour, as you all know. Uh, that's what that one's about. Uh, I think the new Doctor Strange, that was about that as well at some level. Star Wars has this as well. Come on, when Anakin Skywalker kneels before the evil emperor and sells his soul to the demonic uh, leader in an exchange for the power to keep alive the woman he loved only to lose her in the end because he made the deal. That's a classic Faustian bargain. But the Faustian bargain isn't something you only see in movies. You've also heard it in songs, songs like The Devil Went Down to Georgia. Melissa, she's nodding yes, that's right. (laughs) Perhaps you heard this one. Murder was the case by Snoop Dogg. 
Crossroad Blues, guitarist Robert Johnson. They're all about people making deals with the devil in order to get something. But regardless, all those movies and all those songs can all be traced back to this passage right here where Jesus Christ having been baptized, having just begun his earthly ministry, he goes out into the desert to fast and prepare himself to be who he's come to be, do what he's come to do. Jesus Christ, here in the desert, Luke chapter 4, is tempted to make a deal with the devil. We watch as he's tempted. We read as he's assaulted. Oh, but he wins in the end, doesn't he not? He overcomes. But how does he do it? How does he overcome evil? How does Jesus Christ defeat Satan? It's not how you might expect. So let's see today how Jesus, of all people, deals with the devil right here in Luke chapter 4. We'll see the passage in three parts. First, we're going to look at the existence of evil. Second, the shape of evil. And finally, the defeat of evil. Existence of, shape of, and thankfully, the defeat of evil here in Luke chapter 4. Let's begin here in number one and take a look at the existence of evil in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus, we read this, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. Again, he had just been baptized and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's a sermon in and of itself, by the way. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now, right away, you can read it here. One of the claims the Christian faith makes is that not only does evil exist, but supernatural evil exists. That's what this passage is about. And right away, I think we have to deal with the claim because for a lot of people today, maybe you today, many people have a really hard time with this claim. People say stuff like this, you read it, you hear it, I'll hear this. Morgan, we, like, we don't even really believe in absolute truth anymore. We don't believe in real right, real wrong anymore. We barely believe in good and evil anymore. How can you expect me to believe in supernatural evil? Things like demons, someone like Satan, like you're sounding like the old church lady from that Saturday Night Live skit, some you may have seen. Thank you, no one laughed first service, by the way. That's just, it's a little older crowd. Andrew Del Banco, uh, he's a humanities professor at Columbia University. He wrote a book in the 1990s with a fascinating title. It's called this, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he opens the book with this statement as the very first words. He writes, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. He's saying, we see evil, but we don't know what to do with it. In other words, when our culture asks the question, what's wrong with the world? Why is there evil? Our culture says everything has a natural cause. For example, evil comes from bad genetics, from bad psychology, a lack of education, a lack of money, regressive religion. Everything bad in the world we say today has a natural cause and therefore we believe we can eliminate it with natural solutions. Things like education alone, information alone, restructuring social systems alone. But as Del Banco goes to point out, and again, he's not a Christian, he calls himself a secular liberal person, he points out that that approach is ultimately naive. 
He says, for example, look at Nazi Germany, one of the most ruthless killing cultures ever existed. Who were these people? In their day, they were some of the most cultured, the most educated, the wealthiest people in the world in their day. They had science. They had philosophy. They had art and music, a sense of national identity. And what did they do? They weaponized all of it. So to suggest education alone will eliminate evil, it's naive. And Delbanco says saying that all evil can be eliminated just by restructuring social systems, redistributing wealth, is naive as well. He said, look at Marxism in the former Soviet Union. The capitalists were brutal. The capitalists were selfish. The capitalists were wicked. So Marxism said, let's up in the whole system and just burn the whole thing down. Give power to the people who have been fundamentally disenfranchised, the proletariat. And what did they do? History shows they were as or more wicked than the capitalists. So Demonka says, if you think all evil has a natural cause, you just don't get it. And he summarizes his thought with a scene from a movie, which itself is a case study in evil. The movie is The Silence of the Lambs, where he quotes Dr. Hannibal Lecter, the cannibalistic serial killer, in this scene talking to police officer Starling, played by Jodie Foster. He's describing the horrific things he's done. And then she looks at him in this scene. Jodie Foster asks him, what happened to you, Dr. Lecter, that you could do this? Who did something to you that could make you be so bad? And here's his response. He said, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Officer Starling, you've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? And Tabanco says this, our culture, our generation today has no answer for the monster's question. He's saying, we fail to defeat evil precisely because we don't believe evil exists in the first place. I mean, like, how can you defeat something if you don't believe it's real? Our culture can't answer the monster's question. Oh, but let me tell you today, Christianity can, and Christianity has. It says this, there is an actual devil, and therefore evil in the world cannot be reduced to just human choices alone. Humans, yes, have a capacity innately for evil inside them, but this cannot account for all the evil in the world. There is a devil, the Bible says, who magnifies, amplifies, complicates the evil human beings do. And by the way, this is not illogical to believe in. Because if you already believe there is a good, benevolent, powerful, supernatural being named God, it's not illogical at all to believe there exist evil supernatural beings. It's actually more illogical to believe those beings don't exist. So far from saying it's naive to believe there's a devil, I'd go so far as to say you're naive if you believe there's not. It's not Christians who are being simplistic when they claim there is such a thing as supernatural evil. It's those who don't believe in a devil, supernatural evil who are being simplistic. So number one, first of all, glad we got that out of the way, right? Supernatural evil 
exist. No, how does it work? Hmm? How does it go to work in our lives? This passage talks about it. Let's look at it. Number two, there's a shape many times evil has. Three main ways this passage shows us that Satan tempts Jesus, Satan tempts people. Three bargains, offers, deals in the desert he offers us. Let's look at him in turn. First of all, Satan tries to offer us a life of only bread. Okay, life of only bread. Let me try to show you what I mean. Look at the first offer here on the table. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, on one hand, this seems kind of unfair because, again, in the most obvious four words of all the Bible, because Jesus had been fasting, it says, and he was hungry. So, yes, he's hungry. But on the other, this doesn't really seem like a big deal because, you know, like food's not a bad thing. No. (laughs) Bread's not a bad thing. No. This isn't saying like God is a gluten-free being here, okay? That's not what this is after. Like Satan comes to tempt you with tasty dinner rolls, you know, or like delicious pastries at noontime, you know. (laughs) Multiplying food even wouldn't have been a bad thing. Jesus will do this in his ministry. So what's the deal the devil's offering? You can catch the undercurrent through Jesus' response. Jesus answered, it is written... Man shall not live on bread alone. Now Luke's version cuts this off from the rest from Deuteronomy 8, but the rest of the verse reads like this. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, Satan, true life doesn't come from only bread. Doesn't come from only bread. Yes, I am hungry, but the stuff of earth, bread alone, can't meet my true need. What's Jesus getting at? Someone by the name of Henri Nguyen. You may have read him. The great Roman Catholic writer and minister to the mentally handicapped in Canada. He looked at this passage in Luke and he wrote a whole book about it. It's a great little book. You should get it. It's called In the Name of Jesus. And in his book, he quoted another book, a novel called Less Than Zero by a writer named Brett Easton Ellis. You may have heard of him. And Less Than Zero is all about the lives, the terrible and true stories of sex and drugs and violence among the super rich children of Hollywood celebrities. Basically, it's celebrities' kids gone wild. True stories. And Nguyen read all about that and then wrote this. He said, and the cry that arises from behind all of this is clearly... Is there anybody who loves me? Is there anybody who really cares? Is there anybody who wants to stay home for me? Is there anybody who wants to be with me when I'm not in control, when I feel like crying? Is there anybody who can hold me and give me a sense of belonging? People are suffering from profound moral and spiritual handicaps without having any idea of where to look for healing. And he's getting at the truth that there is a deep spiritual hunger humans have that longs to be filled, but not just that, that it demands to be filled. And what the devil offers us is the opportunity to use good things, the stuff of this world, to fill a hunger that only God can. It's the spiritual equivalent of trying to like shove a basketball into a sneaker. Now, basketball is a good thing, but you shove the basketball into the sneaker, what's going to happen to the sneaker? It's going to be damaged. Some of you, it's like trying to park your big Texas truck in your bathtub. You do that, what's going to happen? 
It's going to damage the bathtub because damage occurs when the wrong thing is put into the wrong space. And our hearts get damaged when we abuse material goods. When we demand the stuff of earth fill what only God can. And so I want to tell you, if the stones here, if the bread here couldn't give Jesus what he really needed, the stuff of earth can't give you what you really need either. Because the quality of your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Let me ask you, is there space then for God in our lives? Or is he drowned out by the stuff of our phones, the stuff of our clothes, the stuff of our entertainment and television, the stuff of bread alone? The irony is this, if we fill ourselves with only stuff, we'll starve in the end. Deal or no deal, the devil asks. Will you live a life of only bread? Second offer on the table in the desert. It's a kingdom without a cross. Not just life of only bread, but a kingdom without a cross. Verse five, devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant. All the kings of the world said, I can give it to anybody I want to. All you've got to do is worship me. Now, in the background of this is the truth, the reality that Christians believed Jesus had come to win back what had originally been his, but lost through human sin to Satan. Jesus had come back to win rulership of this world. So, what's Satan offering him? Well, everything Jesus had come for, just without suffering. A kingdom without a cross. And Jesus Christ will have none of it. Remember that, remember that for just to illustrate this, remember that place uh, over in Mark's gospel, chapter 8, famous passage. Jesus, he's there with his disciples. He looks out at them, he says, Listen, people have been talking. Folk have been talking about me, rumors spreading. Who do the people say that I am? And then he says, who do you all say that I am? Who do you say I am? Now, do you remember what Peter answers here? All he answers in Mark's gospel, chapter eight, is this. You are the Messiah, period. You're the Messiah. Now, to the Jews, for the Jews, this was a loaded term because Messiah in that day meant specifically in their minds, a powerful political ruler who would come and defeat their nation's enemies, in this case, Rome, of course. Messiah, in other words, had powerful nationalistic connotations. So, Peter was right on one hand. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus doesn't correct him. But he was wrong about his expectations of which kind of Messiah Jesus had come to be. And Jesus picks up on this in Peter's mind because in the very next verse, Jesus says this, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man, uh-oh, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he, oh no, must be killed. And after three days rise again, look at this, he spoke plainly about this. So Jesus was clear. He would not be coming as the kind of nationalistic hero they had dreamt of or wanted. He was plain. His purpose was to be a suffering servant. And he got his point across because immediately next, Peter begins to vibrate. <laughs> he begins to react. It says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't try this at home. Matter of fact, why don't we just all never try this, right? Began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. 
Oh, get behind me. Satan, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What's he saying? He's saying humans are concerned about human kingdoms, kingdoms that rise and fall on human power alone. God is concerned about bringing another kind of kingdom into the world, one based on self-giving, not on self-exaltation or self-promotion. Jesus rightly connects Peter's urge to get a kingdom without a cross all the way back to Satan's temptation in the desert. New Testament commentator Richard Hayes says this about that passage. He says, the characterization of Peter as Satan here is purposeful. In this scene, Peter is functioning as tempter and adversary. Jesus has defined his identity and his vocation as Messiah in a way that contradicts all expectations. Peter's apparently reasonable objection is in fact nothing less than a suggestion that Jesus deny himself and his mission, thus capitulating to Satan And by rejecting Peter's position, Jesus affirms that he is to be a suffering Messiah. And Hayes concludes like this. It's brilliant. He said, when we offer our answer to the question, who do you say that I am? We are not just making a theological affirmation about Jesus' identity. We are choosing our own identity as well. So who do you say, friend, church, that Jesus is? Is he the one who's come to help you, us, defeat your, our political enemies? Or is he the one who teaches us to love and serve our political enemies? Your answer to Christ's question shows you a lot about you, me, a lot about me. This question's really a mirror. Deal or no deal, the devil asks. Will you accept a kingdom? Will you be a part of a kingdom without a cross? Third deal on the table in the desert. Third deal, not just bread of only, a life of only bread, a kingdom without a cross, but a self apart from heaven. Final, final temptation here. The devil led him up to Jerusalem, put him on the highest bit of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now you'll notice the clause here. It's throughout the passage. He said, if you're the son of God, but Wait, hang on a second. The careful reader remembers in just the previous passage, Jesus had come from where? Come on, his baptism. He just crossed the Jordan. What happened at his baptism? God the Father spoke from heaven and said what? You are my beloved son. In you, I'm well pleased. A few verses later, Satan's saying the opposite. If you're the son of God. God says, you're my beloved son. Satan says, prove it. Oh. God says, you're my beloved child. Satan said, prove yourself. A number of years ago, I had a, a pastor friend, really big ministry, uh, preached the gospel for sure with his lips. God loves you. You're saved by grace, not by your own efforts, all that. He did it so well, so charismatic. The thing began to grow fast. And as he grew, so did the pride, arrogance in his heart. He thought his success was coming from him. And as a result, you could tell it became a lot more arrogant. His communication, more condemning of others, more superior and self-estimation. This led to a string, a whole long string of serious conflicts in the church. A ton of people left. It's caused a chain reaction in the church. And he was so devastated then by all of this, he began to drink heavily to numb the pain. Had an affair. Another church member, marriage and ministry fell apart, fired, disgraced, divorced. What had happened? 
Somewhere, somehow along the way, he had made a deal with the devil. He was offered a self apart from heaven. He couldn't hear, you are my beloved son. All he could hear was, prove yourself, prove yourself. He couldn't hear the words, you don't belong to them, child, you belong to me, see. Be awesome. Construct a self how you choose. I want to tell you, looking back on it, the adultery was just like a knockout blow to a man already on the ropes who had made the deal here in the desert. I want to tell you, with all three of these, hear me, overcoming evil, we'll look at it in a second, is less about making the right choice, although yes, it's about making the right choice, but it's less about making the right choice and more about listening to the right voice. And here's why. It's because when we listen to the right voice, we will make the right choice. When we listen to the right voice, we'll make the right choice. How can we do that? Number three, let's see how we do that. How can we defeat evil in our lives? Because evil really can be defeated in your life, which of course begs the question, well, what is like sort of, you know, your everyday most common spiritual warfare, what does that look like in our lives? Okay, how do we do that? Well, most Christians, you may say this, most Christians think spiritual warfare, uh, many Christians I should say, many Christians believe spiritual warfare just looks like, like a big cosmic showdown. Like people, especially in our, in our blessed charismatic world, of which I am happily a part, by the way, card-carrying member, if there were such a thing, love to imagine spiritual warfare as like this intergalactic cage match. You've got like bodybuilder-looking angels on one side, like Chris Hemsworth is Michael, you know, like... Terry Crews is Gabriel, you know, like they're going up against Freddy Krueger and his army of devils like transformers are huge. They leave cities devastated in their wake and rubble, falling on, you know, fleeing, screaming citizens, you know, no. To be honest, though, I think Christians sometimes like to talk more about the epic battles and focus less on the smaller, more common spiritual battles that really serve as the tipping points for our lives, our families, and our churches. We don't engage really with those. Oh no. So what then does real spiritual warfare look like? Well, it looks like this. Satan lying. (laughs) Satan tempting. It looks like Satan lying to Jesus in the desert, lying to Adam and Eve in the garden. Not a scary ghost with a flaming head, but a voice that tempts and lies and accuses. This is the most frequent, common, and devastating form of spiritual warfare. This is Satan's best move. I mean, come on. Don't you think he would have used his very best on the Son of God right here? Yes, this is it. What is it? Not like one pastor put it. It's not fang marks upon your flesh. Lies, though, upon your heart. That's what it is. It's lies upon the heart. So what does Jesus do here? He does something a little counterintuitive. Maybe not what you'd expect. Why doesn't he just, like, release his glory like he did in the transfiguration? What does he just, like, cast the devil out? Like, stand back, foul being. Watch me go to work on thee. You know, just blast him. How did Jesus defeat the devil? Simple as this. You can read it. He used God's word. He used God's word at every point, every temptation. Jesus used God's word. And in his case, all he had was the Hebrew scriptures. We get the gospels, revelation, epistles. All he had is like Habakkuk and Leviticus, right? (laughs) You fire those up. Let me know how good they work for you. So he quoted the Bible to Satan. This wasn't the only time Jesus quotes the Bible in his hour of need. 
On the cross, what did he quote? Mark 15, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's lifted from Psalm 22. And in the Gospel of Luke, his last words were this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Psalm 31. See, in the end, the last temptation of Christ, despite what the old Martin Scorsese movie said, was not lust. It was to abandon the word of God in his hour of need and despair. Oh, but Jesus remained faithful all the way to the end, and he died, literally bleeding with the word of God coming out of his mouth, on his lips as he suffered for you and for me and for the very ones persecuting him and killing him. What about us? Do we do this or do we abandon the word of God in our moment of darkness? Oh, but it's not just quoting the Bible that automatically wins the battle here. Just like you wave it at the devil somehow, like you're a priest in a horror movie, you know. No, just knowing, just quoting the Bible won't save you because you'll notice Jesus isn't the only one here quoting the Bible, is he? Who else is? Come on. Satan. Satan quotes Psalm 91 here. He's misusing, twisting God's word, getting his own agenda across. And by the way, for all of you who are here and you've been hurt by a pastor, someone in my position, or Christians over the centuries, even today, who misquote the Bible, use it to manipulate others, all I can say is, number one, I'm sorry. And number two, this passage shows this kind of thing is possible. Satan does this. Supernatural evil does this. And number three, the fact that this does happen here shows you actually most clearly of who Jesus Christ is. Because the fact that Jesus Christ uses the scriptures perfectly when Satan doesn't and even the best people can't shows you who he came to be. He didn't just come to be a moral example of someone who shows you that in order to win, you got to know your Bible better. Although we must, we just saw that, of course. No, nor is he showing you that you're just going to have to resist the devil. Though, of course we will. If he did, so will we. No, in the end, he's showing you, hear this, that he does perfectly every time what you and I fail to do. He's not just being our moral example here, but our substitute. He's going into the desert to do here what he would do again later in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately on the cross, going in our place. He did what Adam couldn't, Abraham couldn't, David couldn't, Mother Mary couldn't, disciples couldn't, you can't, I can't. He did here in 40 days in his desert what the children of Israel couldn't do in their 40 years in the desert. Remain faithful in our place perfectly. And Yeah, Jesus here, sure. You're like, isn't he making his own deal with the devil? He is, but on his own terms. On his own terms, he says, all right, Satan, you want to make a deal? Here it is. Want a bargain? You got it. Here it is, me for them, my life for theirs, my broken body for the redemption of the world. Against that, there's no law, there's no power, there's no darkness that can stop it. One day I'll be killed, but I'll rise in three days and prove I'm right. See, Jesus came, not just as our example here, but as our savior. And when you see that, you let it affect your heart. Now you begin to use the Bible rightly. And see, again, and it's not just quoting it that saves you because Satan quotes it. Satan makes it about himself. But the Bible in the end is all about Jesus Christ, son of God. To defeat evil, 
your life, spiritual warfare. You use the central message of the Bible, the gospel over and over again, which is this, the good news that Jesus Christ came in your place. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death you could not die to defeat sin, death, hell, and Satan so that you could be forgiven of your sins, released from their power, and be given a whole new life. And when you look at and you use the gospel, now you can look at every deal in the desert and hit decline. If you have Christ, you have enough. And you can say like the writer of the hymn, old hymn, put it like this, it is well with my soul. Writer, put it like this. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Hope you can say amen today, church. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this sobering, sobering passage. Kind of wakes us up in a way. But also, Lord, it's affirming and triumphing. Lord, there's real evil. Oh, but there's a real power that's greater. It's yours. A real love that's greater. It's yours. A real being who came for us that's greater. It's you. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, in the same way, we would use your word rightly. to defeat evil in our homes, families, lives, city. We thank you for it, Jesus, going in our place, doing what we couldn't do. Help us to become that kind of church. Loves it, recognizes it. In Jesus' name, I pray all these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.